Take it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the verses 5 to 10. We'll read it from the beginning of the chapter to verse 10 at the end of the chapter. And there once again the word of our God reads, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then begins our text. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And now you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing from Psalm 96, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when was the last time that you were impressed? And what was it that impressed you? Was it perhaps a gorgeous sunset? Was it a splendid painting or a marvelous concert? Was it maybe the sight of the Rocky Mountains with the sun shining upon it? Was it something that someone said or someone did? In this life, there are times when we are impressed. Would that those times would come along more often. And now why make mention of these things? Well, because here in our text of this afternoon, the Apostle Paul is obviously impressed. He is impressed with the church at Thessalonica, and he makes no bones about it whatsoever. He compliments the members there on the way they have welcomed the gospel. He considers that body of believers to be a model for others to imitate. He is thrilled that they have done such a great job of spreading the gospel. Truly, Paul is impressed. And this is something that, by the way, doesn't happen too often. Paul is quite happy with the believers in Philippi, but they are not praised as highly. He does not speak in the same way to people in the churches of Ephesus or Rome, and obviously he doesn't feel quite that way about the churches of Galatia or Corinth. No, it is Thessalonica, or as they would say today, Thessaloniki, that is singled out for special tribute. Now, this is something that should and is meant to make us curious. This is also something that should cause us to investigate this church and to try to come to grips with its uniqueness, you might say. There are things here 
no doubt, that we can learn as well as apply to our church life today. I think if it were not so, God would not have included this part of the letter in the Scriptures. So I preached to you on the following theme, a model church. We're going to first of all look at its creation. Secondly, we're going to look at its character. And finally, we'll look at its content. Well, beloved, the first thing that we need to ask ourselves about the church in Thessalonica is how did it become a model exemplary church? What factors led to this stage? What is it that made it stand out? Well, the verses 5 and 6 of our text clearly cite a number of factors that led to this kind of development. And for starters, there is the gospel and the way in which the gospel went to work among these people. How did the gospel do its work? Well, the answer has everything to do with words. When Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy came to them originally, they didn't come with a large bag filled with all kinds of fancy tricks and amazing gimmicks. They didn't resort to all sorts of spectacular, mind-boggling miracles. No, what they did is bring the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is a message composed of words. Paul and his co-workers string words together into sentences, sentences into paragraphs, paragraphs that fill pages, and pages that lead to whole speeches. They spoke, and the people listened. They explained, and the people asked questions. They taught, and the people learned. You know, sometimes today you hear communication experts say that words have become a poor means of communication. If you want to convince people of something, if you want to tell them something, if you want to capture them, then we're being told these days, use pictures. We are a visual society, after all. Bombard your audience with visual images. That's what advertising, of course, is doing so effectively. Why do certain products tend to sell and come off the shelves in great haste? Well, that's also why rock videos, for example, are are in. Modern minds are being bombarded and shaped by images, obvious ones as well as hidden ones. Well, beloved, I would remind you this afternoon that in spite of that kind of development or that kind of stress, this is not the way of the gospel. Of course, at times, the gospel uses words to draw a picture, as it were, but essentially the gospel is explained using human words, human vocabulary. Words that communicate fundamental truths about God, about who He is, and about how he saves. And yet Paul is quick to add, notice that too, that the gospel is more than just words. He says it's also a matter of of power. He says, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also, he adds, with power. Thereby he's saying that gospel words are not ordinary words. No, they have this dynamic, they have this this energy, this, this force that 
propels them and comes out of them. Gospel words have the ability to change lives, to penetrate hearts, to convert kingdoms, to move mountains. In other words, do not underestimate gospel words. They have a way of utterly revamping human lives. If you look and study the annals of Christian history, you'll find any number of people have been converted simply by reading the Scriptures. I remember a scientist by the name of Arthur Custance who used to work at the National Research Council in Ottawa. He was stuck in the Yukon for a whole winter. The only thing he had was a Bible. He went into that cabin as an atheist. He came out as a Christian and as a leading one at that. Yes, and when these gospel words Paul is referring to are uttered, Paul says they also, when he utters them anyway, comes with full or deep conviction. And what that means is surely that these words of the gospel aren't bland, they're not indifferent, they're not powerless. You know, words can be that way. Someone may be speaking and they're saying everything very matter-of-factly and, and you cannot tell in what way they are speaking whether they believe what they're saying or not. There's no emotion attached to it. Some preachers, by the way, are like that too. It doesn't matter what part of Scripture they're expounding or what glorious truths they are presenting. It all comes across in the same bland, detached, unemotional way. The hearers fail to sense that any real attempt is being made to convince them, to convert them, or to win them over. There's no urgency and no earnestness in the way in which the message comes across. It's obviously meant for the mind, but it bypasses the heart. Now, uh, while that may be the case with some who call themselves gospel preachers, it's never the case with the Apostle Paul. For he says that our gospel, meaning the gospel preached by him, by Silas, by Timothy, was not this way at all. It came with power. It came with conviction. It came with sincerity. He says, you know how we lived among you for your sake, Earnest words were backed up by sincere and caring lives. And why? Because Paul and the others are on a mission from God. It's a mission to save people from death and judgment. It's the most serious mission in all the world. Theirs is a mission that matters. And hence you can hear Paul say elsewhere to Timothy, Timothy, you, you preach the word. You, you be urgent in season and out of season. And you can hear him tell the Corinthians that he and the other preachers are, are God's ambassadors. That as such, they're always issuing appeals 
always imploring people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, Paul cares. He cares about the message that God has entrusted to him, and he cares that the people believe it and are saved by it. But then, too, Paul knows that the ultimate source of success with the gospel doesn't rest with him, but with the Holy Spirit. He says the gospel came to the Thessalonians in the Holy Spirit. And indeed, you can say that the Holy Spirit is behind all of these things mentioned here by Paul. The, the Spirit, after all, is the one who creates the gospel. He's the one who works the conviction. He's also the one who supplies the power. Without the Spirit, there is no authentic preaching. For without the Spirit, there is no truth, no conviction, no power. And how we need to recognize these things when it comes to spreading the gospel and building the church. If we think that this so-called model church in Thessalonica is the product of gimmicks, indifferent words, fancy entertainment, and mere human effort, we have missed the boat. This is not what changed the Thessalonians, and that's not what will change people today. The Spirit has to do it. He has to do it with the gospel. He has to do it with men and women whom he fills with sincerity, conviction, and power. Yes, and when the Spirit does, what do we see? What is the character of this Thessalonian church, and how do they react? Well, notice, beloved, three things stand out here in our text and what Paul says. In the first place, it says they embraced the gospel. Paul says in verse 6, you welcomed the gospel. Well, in other words, they received it. They opened their arms and their hearts to it. They recognized its value. They, they understood its message. And they saw its, its relevance. Yes, and they did so under trying circumstances, I would remind you. Paul says that in spite of much affliction, read Acts 17 and you can see how the gospel came to Thessalonica and how it stirred up a storm of protest. The Jews were jealous of it. The Gentiles were suspicious of it. And together, they made the lives of those early Christians miserable. They ridiculed them. They isolated them. They beat them. They could everything, they could, did everything they could to make them pay a high price for their newfound faith. But nevertheless, these people, they, they still welcome the gospel. Paul even states it more positively. He says, you, you welcome the message with joy. In other words, these, these people didn't moan and groan their way through the Christian life. They didn't complain about how 
tough it was to be a Christian living in today's world. They didn't accuse God of giving them a raw deal. No, in spite of their hardships, in spite of their sufferings, they received the gospel with joy. And if you ask, how did they manage that? Well, the secret is in the next part of the verse. You welcomed, you received the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You see, again, you meet the Spirit. You always keep meeting the Spirit. As He works in the hearts of men like Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so He works in the hearers. He's busy producing fruit in their lives. Does Paul not tell us elsewhere that he is the one who produces things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all the rest? And so it is with joy. Indeed, the remarkable thing about joy is that it's often connected with the spread of the gospel. I think of Acts 8, verse 8, where we're told about the reaction of the Samaritans to the gospel. It says there was great joy in that city. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch who went back to Africa after he accepted the gospel and of whom it says finally, and he went on his way rejoicing. And I think of what happened in Pisidia of Antioch where it says the disciples were filled with joy. And I think of Philippi where we're told about the jailer who was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Beloved, as you read those verses, you you can't fail to to miss the enthusiasm and, and the happiness and the delight that the gospel brings into the lives of these people and people everywhere. They may be persecuted, but they're still rejoicing. They may be facing opposition and hatred, but that doesn't dull or remove their gladness. And doesn't it make you think? And doesn't that make you as well examine your own response to the gospel? Can it be that what opposition and hatred have not done for us, time has done instead? Has it made the gospel routine to you because you've heard it for so many years and so often? Has it made it mundane? Has it made it ordinary? Has it made it dull and boring? If so, there's something to be learned from the reception, the kind of reception that the Thessalonians give to the gospel of God. Yes, and that brings us to the second thing, for there is also something to be learned from what the Thessalonians do with the gospel. First, they embrace it, Paul says, and next, they they start to live it. Paul says, to them and about them, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. He's saying the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they even became imitators of of Christ Jesus himself. Now, imitation, interesting subject. Imitation can be a bad thing. If you decide to imitate a lazy person, a drunk, a gambler, a drug pusher, a prostitute, 
Those are not exactly good things. They're bad things. Any that kind of imitation will ultimately lead to your undoing and your downfall. Imitation can also be an indifferent thing. Sometimes at a wedding reception, people will try to imitate famous people in history. Young boys may try to imitate a certain hockey player, or the men may try to imitate the golf swing of Tiger Woods. And young women may try to imitate the mannerisms of a certain model or famous lady. Such behavior need not be bad. It may only be a form of entertainment, maybe even a flattery. But you know, in spite of all of that, in spite of some imitation being bad and some being indifferent, there's also some that's wholesome. If you know of someone who is a good Christian role model, and you and your children decide to imitate him or her, it may turn out to be a very positive thing in your life. Yes, and it's that kind of imitation that the Apostle Paul is speaking about in our text. He comments positively on the fact that the Thessalonian believers are busy imitating him and Silas and Timothy, and above all, the fact that they are imitating or trying to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. And then we are to understand that this imitation is not something brief or temporary, and it doesn't have anything to do with entertainment either. As well, it has nothing to do with strange mannerisms or slick moves, no. These new believers imitate Paul and company as well as Christ in terms of their behavior. They sought to imitate them in terms of their speech, their, their actions, their deeds. They try to live the kind of lives that Paul and company and the Lord Jesus lived. And they try to imitate their devotion and their holiness. Yes, and I think that too is relevant for our lives today, isn't it? For the question may well be asked of us, who do we model our lives after? Who do we imitate? Do you perhaps try to imitate the lifestyle of a certain person that you've read about or seen? Or do you try to imitate that movie star that you saw on the television program? Well, have it be on your guard as to exactly who you seek to imitate. And make sure that whoever you seek to imitate is worthy of a tim 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 imitation. Imitate those who are examples of sinful behavior, and I guarantee you will live to regret it. On the other hand, imitate those who are examples of holiness and godliness, and I dare say you will be richly blessed. And so, beloved, the believers in Thessalonica embrace the gospel, they live the gospel, and a third thing, in our text, they spread the gospel. Verse 7 says, And so you became an example, a model to all the believers in Macedonia 
and Achaia. From that, it's obvious that the way in which the Thessalonians lived didn't remain a a private, limited kind of restricted thing. No, the way they lived served as a model to others, even to others who were living perhaps far, far away. And how did that happen? Well, verse 8 explains it. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Notice that expression sounded forth, or I think the niv has rang out. That can mean anything from an echo to a really large boom. And I think here the latter is meant. It's obvious that Paul and these believers are making a loud noise or a big splash with their newfound faith in Christ. People everywhere in that part of the world were talking about them. And if you ask, how did that happen? How could this happen? You know, we're talking about a time when there was no telephone, no television, no radio, no internet, no Facebook. So how did the news of the gospel and of these Christians who we're living the gospel spread. Well, the only answer we have it was mouth to mouth to mouth. It's what we call holy gossip. Obviously, these people live their Christian lives in such an open and bold way that others took notice and started to talk about them. And in no time at all, people everywhere were talking about those Christians in Thessalonica and how those Christians lived. If you think of it, is is that so difficult? If you had said to those believers long ago in Thessalonica that You know, evangelism, you know, evangelism is really kind of scary and it's expensive and it's complicated. I think they would have looked at you with kind of a dumb stare on their face. Or maybe you would have gotten a loud laugh. What's so hard about winning others for Christ? All you have to do is embrace the gospel, live the gospel, and talk about the gospel. And then the news will spread in no time. It'll it'll travel all over the place. Something to think about, right? Something to imitate? Now there's one more thing that requires our attention in our text. What were those Christians saying, and what were the people in the outer lying areas of Macedonia and Achaia, what were they hearing? What were they hearing about these believers? Three things. The first is, and you might call that repudiation. Paul says they're hearing how you turned from idols. From idols. Now that doesn't really catch our attention too quickly, but you need to understand that in the world of Paul's day, idols were everywhere. 
People everywhere believed in idols. They made idols. They worshipped idols. They carried idols around. They were enslaved to idols. And out of here, now those people in Thessalonica are no longer bowing down before idols. But they had rejected them. Turned away from them. Well, that's news. When you're different, you sometimes stick out like a sore thumb, right? And and that wasn't all, because to turn away from idols, that's negative. There's also something positive, Paul says, and you turn to God. You now serve the living and true God. There's the second thing. And the second reason why the Thessalonians became famous, and it's called dedication. They turned their back on idolatry, and they turned their hearts to God. And they started to serve Him. And why did they start to serve Him? Because they believed in their heart of hearts, this is the God who lives. This is the God who hears and and speaks and sees, and tastes, and smells. This is the living and active God, the true and holy one. And so you see, there is repudiation here, there is dedication. And there's also something else. There is expectation. Paul again says about them, You wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. You know, here, serving God and waiting for Christ go hand in hand. Living and looking go together. The Thessalonians made no bones about the fact that they expected the Lord Jesus Christ to come back. And and neither did they hide the fact that they saw him as the resurrected one, as well as the rescuing one and the returning one. Not only does he deal with death, not only does he defeat the grave, but he's coming back to gather his people together. And to promote them to glory. Yes, in all of that, may the Thessalonians famous. People everywhere knew these characters in Thessalonica had repudiated idols. They were serving the living God. And they were expecting the Son of God to come back. That's what they were known for. And if you think of it, isn't that what we should be known for today as well? People need to know, we, as Christians, we, we reject the idols of today. This morning we heard about secularism and materialism and hedonism, and, and, and you can add all kinds of other isms to it, like wokeism. People today need to hear that we've rejected all of that modern philosophical nonsense, those ideologies, and that we are committed to serving the living, true God. 
whom we speak to every day, who hears our prayers and who answers them, and that we are expecting. We are a people of hope because we know Jesus Christ is coming again. Beloved, those are the kind of things that should characterize the lives of the children of God. Oh, and if they did more and more of that, then the model church would not be a thing of the past, but it would become a living and growing reality today. And so, beloved, this text that we have before us this afternoon represents a big challenge. We should not just sit saying, settle for being church. And we certainly should not settle for being just any church. Now, we should strive to be the best church we can be. A church like Thessalonica that sounds forth, echoes, blasts away the gospel. We should strive to become a church that impresses God and men. But then for those reasons of repudiation, dedication, and expectation. Do you see it, beloved? Do you understand it? And believe it and live it. Amen.